Normally, there'd be a cool little buffer video that would give me about 20 seconds to figure this all out and kind of get set. But You know, the temptation of pastors in the 21st century is to become too reliant upon technology. And I think, I'm just speaking autobiographically here. I don't presume to speak for any other pastor, but it's easy to begin to substitute cool tech and production for the Holy Spirit. And I think, man, if, if the flow is just right, if we could just dial it in and the video element is just right and everything's smooth and man, people will get saved. Man, the Holy Spirit, God will stir people's hearts and it's like, um, people were preaching in the first century and getting saved and there was no technology. And, and, and on the European continent in the 1400s, and Zwingli and Luther and stirring up a reformation, and there, was no, there were no iPads, and there was no video feed. And, and, and so I just, man, I just got to go back to that place of reliance on the Spirit. And so I'm going to try something a little different today. I'm, I'm going with the less scripted uh, notes here. You, I almost, almost write everything out all the time. And so I just, um, I'm not wanting to do that as much anymore. And so uh, I have more of kind of a bullet point sentence fragments notes, which means this could be a really short sermon or it could go for two hours. And I don't know how it's going to go. So if 60 minutes from now you guys are getting up and kind of easing towards the door, I'll just pretend like I'm not seeing you, and, and we'll just, we'll go from there. Um, a, little, a little bit of my story, you know, we're in, we're in First Peter, we're in a series called Exile, we're talking about what it means to live in this world as exiles, uh, this is not our home, and uh, I was thinking this week about my story, and this is a really strange little part of my story. When I was a younger guy, when I was just getting out, getting mobile, driving, I remember, you know, I pulled through some fast food place and get some food, and, uh, and, then, and then my trash from that meal almost always went out the window of the moving car. I, I'm, not ha- I'm not really, you know, it's embarrassing actually to say that now, but I was a litter bug, right? I, I mean, I don't know if, it, if it's tied to, I mean, what kind of psychological wound my parents inflicted upon me that caused me to do bad things because clearly it's not my fault. Uh, it's, it's, it's clearly their fault somehow, right? Right? Um, everybody feels that way until they have kids and they go, no, it's, it's, it's your fault. It's not. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I, I was thinking about this this week. And so, I came to Christ my senior year of college. I grew up in church, right? 23 years in the church, and then I came to know Jesus. And this weird thing began to happen to me almost as soon as I got saved. I began this growing conviction about not throwing my trash out of the car. And, um, and that kind of and it just began to grow in me. And then, I, I, and then at home, I noticed I wasn't just leaving my stuff on the counter. I was throwing it in the trash can. Right, I wasn't just leaving it around my room, and it wasn't that I had this desire for cleanliness. Um, it was just—I I can't explain it. Right? It, it, by the time I got married at 25, two years later, I was—I um, was at a place where I could not throw anything out of the car except apple cores, and, and you know they biodegrade. Um, so I didn't feel bad about that. Some animal's going to finish it off, right? Some bird's going to eat that. Uh, but even now, like Twitter, almost. I I just find that I can't even really throw apple cores out of the car. I, I feel bad about it. I feel bad about throwing trash out. And when I see other people do it on the on the road, I get really aggravated. Right? There's been this steady change in my heart. And what, so what God does? This is just one little snapshot from my life. God brings our conscience to life in Him. 
We, we, I had a conscience before. I knew right from wrong. I knew that I was supposed to do right and not do wrong. It didn't stop me. But w- when I came to Christ, he quickened that part of me and the spirit. And, I, and it began, and, and it's not to say like, hey, if you litter, you may not be a Christian. Um, your convictions will grow at a different rate in different areas, however God's working in you, but he, he brings that to life in us. I'm no eco-warrior, but, but I, I have this conviction, and it's just one way in which God has changed me and sanctified me, right? And so uh, there's a quote, there's a H.C. Trumbull said this, conscience tells us that we ought to do right, but it does not tell us what right is all the time. That's something we're taught by God's word. So as we talk about this idea of conscience today, I, I, I realized um, many times in writing emails or writing a paper or anything, I, I'll get conscience and conscious or conscientious, conscientness, and then all those become garbled in my mind. So can I just help us delineate as we move forward? So um, conscious is is when you're aware of something. You're conscious, you're aware. Conscience is when you wish you weren't. Does that help? It's like, I see that, I'm aware of it, I wish I wasn't aware of that because I see that it's bad, right? Conscience is that differentiation, it's a moral differentiation, it's good or it's bad. Uh, you can think of it like this. Your, your conscience is like a clock, right? A, a clock tells time. It doesn't set time, but it tells time. And so then the law of God, God's word, his perfect law, is, is like the sun, right? So you guys know we, we get our time from our relationship to the sun, the way we uh, orbit around the sun and the way that our planet spins on its axis gives us our days and our nights as we transit around the sun. And so the sun becomes the waypoint. The sun becomes the centerpiece. It defines time for us, and then our clocks just reflect that reality. It tells us what time it is. And if the clock is wrong, it's only wrong because it's not synced up with the sun properly, right? So if our conscience, our conscience is our clock, it's telling us what time it is as we revolve, as our lives revolve around the centerpiece of Jesus and his word, right? And when our conscience is not aligned with that, our clock, right? Is that making sense? Does that analogy work for you guys, right? So a lot of people think they have a clear conscience when what they actually have is a bad memory. Right? I, I, guilty. A lot of people think they have a clear conscience. The, the, uh, they have actually a, a short memory. So what does God's word say about having a clear conscience? Well, that's what Peter really kind of unpacks here in chapter three in this letter to those who are exiles in this present word world. <clears throat> and I'm not gonna put the words on the screen for you because we don't have it. So I hope you have a Bible. Um, just pretend if you don't have a Bible, so that uh, or pull out your your uh, device and pull up your electronic Bible. First Peter chapter three, verses eight to twenty-two, and we're just going to take it in three little chunks here and look at this idea of having a clear conscience before God as believers. So let's look at uh, verse eight and nine. It says, "Finally, all of you have unity of mind." sympathy, brotherly love, have a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You remember we just read in chapter two, Jesus didn't open his mouth 
He didn't revile back when he was reviled. Remember, it's all this. So Peter's just the same point. Jesus is our example. And he goes on in verse 10, 11, and 12. And he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let that person keep his tongue from evil. Hold your tongue. If, if you want to live long and prosper, to quote Spock, you need to, you need to hold your tongue and keep your lips from speaking deceit. Let that person turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to, they're open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So let's talk about conscience for a minute here. Conscience, two Latin words you need to know. Con is a prefix. In Latin, that means with. So we say we have confidence. Fide is faith. Right or, or fidence, fidencia is the state of having faith. It's con is with. We ha- we're with faith. We have we're, we're filled with faith. Right. Con is with. Science is knowledge. Science is the word that means knowledge. And so conscience really, literally, is the part of us that is with the knowledge of good and evil. It's with the knowledge of right and wrong. It's it's part of God's general revelation to humanity, right? You know that God's given us a general revelation. He's given us a special revelation. The general revelation is creation. We look around, Paul says in Romans 1, and we, that there's a God because we look out here and we see all that he's made and it's order. It's not chaos. It's beauty. It's not destruction, right? It reflects who God is. And part of the creation in each one of us is the conscience. It's in us. And it tells us right and wrong. And we we have to recognize that reality that this is right, there's a right, and there's a wrong. And then what happens is we come to Christ, he awakens that, he he, uh, quickens, that is the best word I can think of really, quickens that conscience in the spirit so that it becomes fully alive and informed by and instructed by the word of God. So now it's not just, I know there's a right and wrong, what right is and I know what wrong is, right? So we go to the next level. So then the ethic for the Christ follower is much higher. We, we talk all the time about, um, you know, we're not under the law, under the Old Testament law. So it's not that we're not under the law is that in Christ Jesus, we're so far above that standard of righteousness because he kept it perfectly. It's, it's like God would say to us, in order to get to heaven, you got to be able to fly. And, and, and I don't know how hard you've flapped your arms and stood out in the front yard in a strong breeze. I, I can never get off the ground. And I, you know, so, but when I get in a plane, when I go to SeaTac and I get on a plane, I can fly. But it's not my strength. It's not my power. It's the plane and, the, and the, the laws of thrust and thermodynamics, uh, not thermodynamics, aerodynamics, right, at work that, that allow me to escape the bonds of gravity, the law of gravity. It doesn't go away. It doesn't stop existing. But I, as long as I'm in the plane, I can, I can supersede it. That's the life in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God. We're not bound in the law. We're able to fly above the law. We're, we're able to go beyond that minimum standard of God's perfect righteousness, as it were, and to live fully in Christ Jesus as followers of him. I, I love this idea that, that, that a conscience, our clear conscience is a possibility in Christ Jesus that we can stand before him and go, I'm clean. I'm clean before you. I love that. I love looking for examples of that down through history, trying to look back and see people that I can look to and go, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of uh, 
resolve that I want to have when it comes to this issue of having a clear conscience. I was looking at this week, Abraham Lincoln, uh, though many revisionists, historical revisionists are painting him in uh, questionable light these days. Abraham Lincoln was a, a staunch man of God. He was a godly man. And um, he was a president who, who knew adversity during his time in office, especially during the American Civil War. Uh, we call him Honest Abe. He was a very honest man. And importantly, uh, more than anything else, he was honest with himself. He was a person who knew how to be honest with himself. That during his time in office, he was going to make mistakes. He was going to have errors in office. He would misstep at times, and he'd have to deal with that. But he resolved himself never, ever to compromise his personal integrity. And, and there's this, uh, this quote, one of his biographers wrote uh, that Lincoln's resolve to this was so strong by God's grace that he once said this, and here's the quote. Lincoln said, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if, the, if, it, if at the end of it, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left, and that friend shall be down in and he recognized that doing the right thing, making the right decision, honoring God may cost him everything in this life, but he was going to do it because he knew what mattered most. I, mean, I think we could do it with more Abraham Lincoln's in public office personally, right? But we, we, we don't have that. We have the antithesis of that. We've, we've lost ethic. We've lost morality. We've lost true north in our culture, and now we're a uh, Ecclesiastes would, would paint a picture of um, children who sit at the banqueting table of kings, right? And, and they don't have any sense of right or wrong. They just do what they want, what gets them what they want. It's, it's a bad situation. But, you know, we, we're, we're, we're not in a place to totally stand in judgment over that because we kind of have a tendency to twist language. I know I do, and to make ourselves more comfortable with sin. Uh, one example I was thinking about this week is we, we speak of a thing we call necessary evil. It's funny because it's a matter of a clear conscience. We go, evil is bad, right? And we say, well, that's a necessary evil. That's kind of a weird twisting of language because the more we say that, the more we believe that, the more the thing becomes necessary and the less it is evil. Right? Have you noticed that? And you start saying that's a necessary evil, it becomes more and more necessary and less and less evil. Yeah? Yeah, we do that. We just twist our words. And, 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 we, and we, we see that in our lives and we go, yeah, I'm going to find a way to be comfortable with sin. I'm trying to find a way to assuage my guilt. I'm trying to find a way to ease my conscience, right? And God says, don't do that. I gave it to you for a purpose, right? We, modern psychology is just bent on this uh, endeavor to rid, of us, uh, rid us of our guilt feelings, to rid us of the concept of shame. You should never feel ashamed. You should never feel guilt. God gave us those things as a gift. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Did you know that? When you feel conviction about a thing, you feel a sense of guilt or shame about having done something or thinking about doing something. That's a gift of the Spirit, especially if it's happening before you. He's, he's tugging at you. He don't do that. You're going to regret it. Don't do that. You're going to hurt somebody. And it's a gift to us. And yet we work so hard to short-circuit the discipline of the Lord in our lives. 
And so we, as Christians, as Christ followers, we're, we're living in the fullness of, trying to live in the fullness of our sanctification, trying to follow Jesus in lives that are lived not in an effort to please God or appease him to earn our salvation, but we're trying to live in a way that pleases him because we're grateful for our salvation. Right? So we, we can't ever get that confused because the motive is so important. We want to stand before Jesus at his returning and we want to stand there with a clear conscience and say, Lord, I, I stand before you clean because of what you've done and I have given my best to you. Man, I want to be able to say that. I want to be able to say that. And, and, and if my motive is to earn that from him, I'm going to fail. If my, if my motive in that is just, Lord, I'm so overwhelmed, like I was this morning, I was telling you guys earlier, just overwhelmed with joy at the thought that I'm your son and you delight in me. And, and I'm, I'm trying to keep the car on I-5 because it just, um, you know, you get all bleary-eyed. You're like, oh, man, I'm just overwhelmed. And I'm going to die and see you right now because I can't stay on the interstate, right? It's just this beautiful place. It changes everything. When we're not working to earn it, we're working to enjoy him. Peter continues in verse 13. <clears throat> he says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, Right? Who is, who is there to do you harm if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're going to be blessed. Don't have any fear of them, nor be troubled. But do this. Here's the, here's the remedy. Don't fear man, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. That word uh, in the Greek, make a defense, is apologia. That's the word we get apologetics from. It's to make a defense. It's to explain why do we believe what we believe. So uh, Peter goes on. He says, yet do that, last half of 15, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good or a clear conscience so that when you're slandered, and you will be slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It's better that you suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So here's what I want to say about this section, verses 13 to 17, right? Evangelism is not optional. If you want to stand before Jesus with a clear conscience, evangelism is not optional. It's not something that set us some segment of the church, the super Christians with a spiritual gift of evangelism. It's something he's called every one of us to do. This, this whole Great Commission thing in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, going to the world, making disciples of all nations. In order to disciple somebody, they need to come to know Jesus, right? Now, sometimes I'm a great example of somebody that was getting right content and information for a long time before I, my heart actually flipped and came to Christ. But, but part of the necessity of discipleship is that they come to Christ. You can't, when we talk about lambs and goats, the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, you can't disciple goats, right? So they've got to come to Christ, not optional. Jesus commands it. And then he says these crazy things like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? All through 1 John, that's kind of the theme is like, here's some litmus test. You say you love God, but are you doing this? Because God says, if you don't do this, you don't really love him, right? And so this is one of those things. And so to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment with a clear conscience, we need to be sharing our faith. That doesn't mean you have to go knocking door to door in your neighborhood, although some of you may need to do that. Because I discovered this wild and crazy thing in my days of campus ministry, 
right? I had said to God very arrogantly, I'm a musician. You made me musical. And that's what you've called me to do. And so that's what I'm going to do. Please don't do anything else. Uh, you call me to a discipleship ministry of college guys. And I love sitting down with them over food and coffee and talking about your word, how their life is shaping and taking shape around you. But I, but I don't do evangelism, Lord. You know that. I, I'm, that's not my gift, not my calling. I don't enjoy it. I don't want to do it. Really? I was scared, about, I was scared of it, right? And here's what happened. We had these guys come through the campus of the University of Georgia. It's 35,000 undergrads. It's a small city. It has its own transit system, right? And these people will come in from out of town, and the big sign guys, you know, the, 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 with the poles, they're about 10 feet tall, and the big sign, and, 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 and the signs read uh, often like, you're a worthless sinner bound for hell. And my response, if, if people are worthless, why would Jesus go to the cross for them? And I'd end up in these debates with these street preachers, and I realized really quickly what was happening was all the, the pagans standing around were watching two people that they thought were Christians argue with each other. And God convicted my heart. He said, that's not, that's not helping. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do, Lord? And he said, do it better. I said, no, that's not what you called me to do. He said, no, look, I'm calling you to do it right now. No, 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 Lord, I have a degree in music, right? And, and here's what happened. As I stepped out in faith, so stand up, probably the platform, the free speech platform from the floor to here is about how high I was off the ground. And in, a, in, a, in the student center, during class changes, when about five or 6,000 students are all making their way through that area, I would stand up and I begin to shout and I begin to preach. I just begin to share the gospel from there. And then 10, 15, 20 students would kind of come around to see what all the commotion was and they'd heckle me and we'd interact. And I'll tell you what happened the first year that I started doing that once a week, every week. I got to know the atheists on campus really well because they would find me and they would heckle me. And they were throwing questions at me that I didn't know the answer to. And so every day I would, I would say, great question, I don't know. I'll be back here tomorrow at 3 p.m. Why don't you come find me? I'll tell you the answer. If you really want to know, I'll be here tomorrow. And I begin to have a relationship with those people. They would see me on campus and say, hey, Mike, how are your kids doing? Crazy. Like the head of the Atheist Association at the UGA would say, how, how are your kids? Insane, right? And I began to enjoy just straight up walking up to strangers on the street and saying, hey, did you get one of these yet? Did, did anybody give you one of these? Oh, no, what is that? Ah, it's, it's a track. It's a gospel track. It's a gospel of John. Whatever I had in my hand, you know, you get creative. You just enter, enter into a conversation. Man, I begin to love evangelism. It's one of my great loves now as a pastor. I would never have discovered that if I had stayed in fear. If I had stayed in the place of fear. I had to listen to my conscience. God was quickening my conscience. I had to listen to it and I had to heed it, right? Uh, I want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to stand with Paul and say, I was a doulos apostolos, right? Uh, doulos is uh, the word for uh, uh, bond servant and apostolos is the word we get apostle from. It's somebody who's sent with a message. And Paul says, God sent me with a message and, he, and, and I didn't have any choice in the matter because when he set me free, I opted to stay his slave. I said, I've been a slave to sin, now I'm going to be a slave to righteousness, and I want that, right? I want, I want us to be in that place. Of, I, I'm bound by the goodness and grace of God. I can't help it. it. scares me. Yeah, it's hard. It's intimidating, but I've got to. I'm compelled 
by the love of Jesus. He says here in the text, he says, set apart Christ the Lord is holy. That's important, right? That's so important because we've got to recognize that Jesus is our authority. He's our ruler. He's our liege, our king, and we obey him. It's part of setting him apart as holy. And that's the, here's the other part. If we're going to do evangelism, if we're going to be impactful in our community, that means we have to give some other things up. I'm finding this out right now in my life in a new and fresh way, just like we all do at every stage of our lives. Like there's a new giving up, there's a new being uh, trimmed. Uh, John 17, this is being cut back, being pruned, right? There's a God calling, say, okay, but now these things are a hindrance to your ministry now. You, you, so give that up, lay that aside, cast aside every sin that so easily entangles, he says in Hebrews, right? And run the race with endurance so as to win the prize. And so there's always things that he's trimming away from our lives and saying, okay, you got to give that up so that you can be more effective for the gospel. I want you to run like somebody winning the prize. Like you got to go after it, right? And so there's a setting apart Christ the Lord as holy is an important part of this. So evangelism is not optional. Set apart, set apart Christ as holy. And then he says, and be ready to give an answer. You think, well, gosh, how am I going to do that? I don't, have a, I don't have the brain for apologetics. I, I don't think I can learn that stuff. It's just like be ready to give an answer for every question or objection that's out there. He says be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. That's a different thing. You don't have to have an answer for all the questions that the skeptic will throw at you. You just have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. And let me tell you something. If you step out in faith and do that, Christ will begin to equip you in the spirit to give an answer for those other questions because you'll get a hunger. You'll be like, I don't know the answer to that. I should know the answer to that. Where's a book or a resource or a YouTube video that I can watch to get the answer to that? And you begin to grow in the knowledge and the goodness of God. And that's what he wants for you. And he says, do that. When you do that, do it in respect, right? We have to be winsome so that we can win some. Checking with that? You know what winsome means? Yeah? There's a, there's a, there's a zestiness. People, it, it was, Jesus talked about let your words be seasoned with salt, right? Let it be seasoned with salt. People taste your life and go, that's, a, that's strange, but I kind of like it. I don't know what to make of that, but I'm, I'll be back for more, you know? There's just people walk away confused. They go, I don't know what to do with you, you crazy Christians. Don't be jerks for Jesus, okay? Be winsome. Do it with gentleness and respect. And then he he finishes out the chapter here, 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, clear conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, all having been subjected to him. So this is a ricky passage. I want to unpack this. I want to do it justice here. Uh, this is, so if we want to have a clear conscience, and evangelism is an essential part of having a clear conscience. Paul's now going to say public identification as a follower of Jesus is also essential to life with a clear conscience. You can't hide. 
And the way that he ordained for us to identify when we come to Christ is to be baptized. We, must, we, we have to challenge new believers in Jesus to follow the Lord in baptism as an act of faith and obedience, right? And, and let me just be real clear on this. It is not salvific. Baptism does not save you. So, well, that's what the text says. It says baptism saves you. Let me just explain that, okay? Baptism, that, that Peter's really clear. He says, not a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the water, it's not you getting dunked, right? It's the baptism that Jesus underwent. And the picture that he gives us is the ark, right? Now, we're, we're, just like we're in the plane, Noah and his family were in the ark. And what took the beating? The ark, right? They could not have withstood the wrath of God in the flood. No one else did. Everyone else died. Only those who are in the ark. And if you've been around me uh, for any amount of time, we've done series before on types in the Bible, and we've looked at how Noah's ark is a type of Jesus, and that there's one door, right? And Jesus said, I am the door. And, and that the ark was covered within which, which is the Hebrew word kafar, which also translates atonement. It's the blood of Jesus that seals us in the vessel that sees us safely through the wrath of God because we can't bear the wrath of God on ourselves. And so just, just the ark, the, the, the picture Peter's giving us is the baptism that saves us is the baptism that Jesus underwent taking the wrath of God upon himself for us in the same way that the ark took the beating so that no one in his family who were inside could come through the wrath and be saved. Does that make sense? Tracking with that? Okay. So, so it's not salvific, but it is necessary as an act of obedience that we be baptized. And so um, Jen and I are counseling for years now. And in the first session, we always tell the new couple, say, listen, we're going to give you some counsel. And here's the first piece. And this is a test because if you don't take this first bit of counsel and put it into, into practice right now, we're not going to do 10 more weeks with you because why would we waste our time with somebody who's not going to heed our counsel? Why would we give you 10 more weeks of counsel if you're not going to heed our counsel, right? This is God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. In fact, Peter's going to say that in chapter five, verse five, right? So this is the same kind of thing. Baptism is an act of obedience. And so we actually put blockage in the in the pipeline and we're supposed to be a conduit of God's grace and blessing he pours out he pour out on other people when we're not acting in obedience and faith we become stoppage we get blockage in the in the tube and so baptism doesn't save us but it is an act of obedience and it's something we're called to do right as a public declaration a public identification with Jesus now we've kind of jacked it up in the American church a little bit not to, not to throw the American church under the bus, but it's supposed to be a public thing. And I love that um, right at the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ and they're like, let's just go down to the pool of Siloam. Let's get it done right now, right? In front of everybody. My friend Vic Doss, who's a campus minister at UGA at our old church, they'll do, and then right before the end of the semester, they'll do public baptisms in the student center plaza. And uh, I love that because it's like, let all the... Uh, lost people see these colleges making a proclamation of their faith in Jesus and identifying with Jesus as such a such a cool thing. And there's nothing really wrong, I don't think, with um, doing baptisms in the church building per se, especially if you're inviting your lost friends and your family to come and witness that. I think that's an important piece of that, right? And um, we, we just, we don't, at Emmaus Road especially, we don't want to coddle 
people. And we don't want um, pride to remain intact. That's a big thing for us. It's like um, with churches that give an altar call and then they'll do this, right? Um, say, well, every head bowed and every eye closed so that no one will see you so that you don't have to worry about being embarrassed about making a profession of faith in Jesus. And I'm like, okay, there are villages in the world today where if you profess Christ, the first thing that happens, they drag you out and they cane you with canes. They hit you with sticks until you can't stand anymore. And then we're, and we're saying to people um, here in the, in the presence of a room of 100 or 200 or 500 Christ followers, we don't want you to be embarrassed. I think that's ridiculous. It's the safest place on earth for people to respond to Jesus is in the church. And we coddle and we, we keep pride intact and it's, it's terrible. It works against the gospel, right? Know that this is a church where we work very hard to destroy pride in the hearts and lives of the people who claim to follow Jesus. And the reason why is, is again, it's coming in chapter five. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Uh, there was a girl, uh, Savitha, Subramanian uh, was from um, Kenya, and she was an exchange student. She was living in the U.S. She was a student as part of our ministry. She came to faith in Jesus, professed faith in Jesus, and we and we worked real hard. So, Savita, let's baptize you. And uh, and so she had called her parents. They're they're Brahmins in the Hindu faith. They're the top caste. They're the priest caste, and they're very well to do Hindus. And uh, she had said, "I've accepted Jesus," and they were. Slightly alarmed, but not too bad. Because in the Hindu faith, you can just put Jesus in the blender with all the other gods, and it works out fine, right? But when she began to talk to her parents about the desire to be baptized, her mom got on a plane from Africa and flew without warning her and showed up at her apartment and stayed with her for six weeks. And she began to, um, where Savita had cleaned out all of her family idols and gods and their little idols in the house, her mom began to secretly go back and put them in different places that she didn't know about and burn incense and basically call demons back into the mix. And, and so it was all around this idea of baptism. They weren't alarmed then, yeah, I like Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. They were alarmed when she said, I want to publicly declare that and identify with Jesus as a follower. And so they, she came all the way from Africa and to combat that in Savita's life. It was crazy. You go, what's the power? It's the, it's the need to publicly identify. It, it goes back to this idea of being able to stand before Jesus with a clear conscience to say, I have identified with Jesus. And so I'm excited that we're going to baptize Jason real soon. Working on the... Working on the plans, we bought the water trough. That's our new baptismal. I wanted to bring it today. I thought, where would we put it? Um, I definitely couldn't fill it with water in here. It'd just go right through the floorboards and into the basement of the church. But uh, we're going to do that. I think as we're building the culture of Emmaus Road, we're saying, I think we want to do baptisms in the context of somebody's house or some park somewhere or a river. And we want the people who are getting baptized to invite all their family and friends, anybody they want to invite, and let's get a bunch of people there who don't know Jesus so that we can say, this person's identifying with Jesus. And then they're getting the gospel in the process. And let's have great food. Let's have barbecue and enjoy each other and have a lot of fun in the process. And then they're getting the gospel. You just got the barbecue covered, right? So it's going to be awesome. We enjoy good food, good times, and we baptize our brother so that they can all see his identification with 
Jesus. So here's the application for us. I think everybody I know, uh, and, and some that I've only just met, but I'm pretty sure we're all followers of Jesus, all claim to be followers of Jesus. But I love what Francis Schaeffer said about the conscience, about um, our innate sense of morality. He said, even for people, let's not talk about God's law and his righteousness yet. Let's just pretend that at the moment that you were born, the only interaction that the God of the universe had with you was to put on your person a device. And the purpose of the device was to record every moral judgment that you make. So when you say, oh, thank you, that was wonderful, that's a, that's a moral judgment. You say, I appreciate that, that was a good thing. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're like, you jerk, that's a moral judgment. And the device records every moral judgment over the course of your lifetime. And when you die and you stand before God, all he does is hit play. And you listen to all the moral judgment that you've made all over the course of your life, and he says, have you lived up to your own standard? And all of us have to go, no, because it's constantly in flux, right? I know mine is. When I'm in the crosswalk, pedestrians have the right of way. When I'm in the car, get out of the way, right? Mine's constantly shifting. It's constantly changing. I need, I need a, an objective morality to give me my direction, right? And so we can't even live up to our own standard of morality, much less God's standard of morality. Our only hope is Jesus and his finished work making a way for salvation. So then Christians living with a clear conscience. There's a direct correlation between holy living and walking in the power of the Spirit and having that clear conscience. Our holiness is our power. If we're not walking in holiness, we don't have power. We don't walk in authority. We're a weak church when we don't walk in holiness. And so we need to plead with God to hone our conscience, to get it sharp, razor sharp, in accordance with what his word says, and not let it be dulled by the constant barrage of this world. Are we responding to that same culture around us with a clear conscience? That's what he's asking us here in the text. It's going to demand that you speak what is true. It's going to cost you at times your comfort, sometimes your status. It may cost you more in this world. It may cost you your job. At some point, it could cost us our lives. It does brothers and sisters around the world today. Some places it costs them their life to, to, to have a clear conscience before God. But may I just say to you that your desire to stand before God with a clear conscience is deeper and greater and more than your desire to be comfortable. Please let that be so. Please let that be true. Please let that be true. You desire that more than your fear of losing your position. You desire a clear conscience more than your influence, more than your life. More than your life. In fact, Scripture says of those heroes of the faith in Hebrews is that they loved not their own lives. Either. They wanted to stand before God with a clear conscience. So we speak with gentleness. We speak with respect about Jesus and his gospel. When we have set apart Christ as holy. And so I'm just asking you this morning, uh, this afternoon on Sunday, two weeks prior to Easter, as we gear up for Easter, as we send out this letter, have you set apart Christ as holy? Have you done that? Have you made up your mind that there's nothing of greater value that you could have in this life or in the life to come than Jesus? Have you set your heart on him alone? Have you obeyed his commandment to be baptized? Have you, have you said, Jesus said, you love him, you obey him, right? Have you been baptized? Is that a priority for you if you haven't? Don't ever let anybody tell you 
the Christian religion and let God, right? There's a place of engaging the will. There's a place of acting in faith, deciding to obey. God's not going to zap these things into your character miraculously. You've got to decide that you want this more than your comfort, and he loves you, and he's committed to your holiness above all other things. So please don't walk out of here today coddling sin in your hearts. And this is the challenge in my life right now. This is autobiographical. God's got me uh, real tight in a bear hug going, I love you so much, you're not going to continue to do that thing. And I go, but Lord, I just, it's so much fun. I like it. He says, no, I love you. Boy, I love you. I love you. You're not going to do it anymore. I'm like, okay. I have to relent. have to give it to him, right? I love this saying. I've heard it so much in Baptist church. It says, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you can ever pay. So don't let the sin, don't let the sun set on unrepentant sin, please. I'm, I'm pleading with you as your pastor. Don't do that, right? And, and the God who spoke the sun into being, ask him to reset your clock, your, your morality clock, your conscience. Ask him to make it alive, to quicken it so that you're in sync with him once more. And then we will stand before him when he returns with trembling and fear at his glorious appearing, but with glad hearts because we'll have a clear conscience. That's what I want for me. It's what I want for you. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for, uh, you've made a way for this to be possible. You've made a way for us to have a clear conscience before you. That's astounding. That's crazy to think about. Lord, we, we are, we are uh, just humbled at that prospect that you give us that option. And so, Lord, we want to take it. And we say right now in a moment of clarity, even if it costs us our comfort, whatever it's going to cost us, we want to be people of integrity. We want to have a clear conscience when we stand before you. We want to be obedient children who love you. And we ask to be filled with your spirit because we recognize that process is too much for us in the flesh. We don't have the strength for that. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.